Hey everybody, it's me, Pete. Sorry I can't be with you uh, today uh, during worship. Uh, Lynn and I are seeing our respective parents uh, in the Midwest, in the Kansas City area where they both happen to live. And we haven't seen them since COVID. Uh, so it was uh, time for us to just get back and check in with them and be with them. Uh, so we'll be back uh, in due time. Uh, but for now, uh, you're stuck with this. And we continue this series on open and relational theology. Uh, last Sunday, wish I could have reframed it a little bit because that open piece uh, really uh, is born out of a response to some pretty conventional views about God's uh, immutability or capacity to change. It's kind of a heady term, but we have some confidence in God and a lot of the lyrics in some of our songs uh, has to do with God's unchanging nature, that God does not change. And that was a pretty strong theological position for a long time and still is pretty strong uh, depending on uh, who you're reading. And the idea of it is, is that if God changed in any way, then that could jeopardize God's faithfulness. So we needed a God who was going to stand firm like a brick wall or something for all time. In fact, that was another piece as part of that changeness or, or inability to change for for what we thought were good reasons, also meant that God uh, expanded through all time, both past, present, and future, that God was already ahead of us somewhere in the future. And because of that, God pretty much knows how everything is going to go. That means uh, a range of problems emerged for us uh, that were difficult to get our brains around, like if God is unchanging, uh, that means God is unaffected. Uh, by anything that would possibly happen. It's not going to mess with God, not going to cause God any kind of empathy, perhaps, if something bad is happening. And that would mean that when we go through pain or struggles, it really wouldn't impact God. And if the future is already pretty well known, regardless of who pulled the trigger on making all that happen, if the future is already pretty much set, then that makes it very difficult for us to ever hope for anything different and kind of makes prayer a pointless activity <laughs> because it's already predetermined. And so these were some problems. Uh, and some of the language that we use uh, for the unchanging nature of God or immutability, these kinds of things, they sound pretty good uh, at first, but the more we live with them and sit with them, they can cause problems, which is why I'm doing this whole series is Sometimes we need a different take on things uh, because some of the ways that we've been talking about God, uh, for some people, at least me speaking for myself, got a little clunky along the way and weren't able to address some things um, in a way that made sense to me. And open and relational theology uh, gives a lot of language and a lot of sensibility to complex things uh, that allow me to grow in my relationship with God and understand my place in the world and how the world works in a, a more sensible way, um, still with plenty of unknown and, and mystery, but um, I don't know, it's working for me. And so the open concept is, is that uh, God actually joins us on the timeline. God is not in the future, but God is with us right now, uh, living every moment as it unfolds. And because of that, and because God uh, while God's essence uh, is unchangeable, uh, who God is is unchangeable, uh, we also see plenty of evidence in Scripture that God is responsive to creation. Uh, we looked at that right from Adam and Eve, uh, where they blew it, 
God didn't kill them. They didn't die, but God actually cared for them and nurtured them. That's a responsive God. We see that over and over and over uh, throughout the whole Bible. And so, so we have this God who's open and responsive to people, can't know the future because that would mean the future is fixed. And therefore, God knows all that can be known and is with us that way, but on the journey with us, responding uh, to each of us in turn. That makes prayer more powerful. That makes what we do with our lives all the more important because it's an open future and we want that future to be very good. So that's where we went last week. And this week we're talking about what I think will be a very easy sell for you that pretty much everybody in our modern world, at least in Western uh, culture and in America and our, you know, at least Christian oriented uh, society, you don't have much of a problem with this one. And that is that God is relational that God is relational, that God is involved in a relational uh, type of exchange uh, with all of creation and with humanity in particular. And so we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, some people um, really, really uh, value this and they really, really resonate with this and have all kinds of ideas about the ways that God has been relating to them and their experiences. Uh, some of those ways are pretty wacky and you hear about some of these ways and you're like, man, what was that guy smoking uh, to give him that kind of an experience? Because I don't know if I want that experience, and I'm sure I don't want to smoke that. So that kind of stuff's out there that we got to kind of get our brains around. And some other people, they hear about people experiencing God in all these ways, and maybe they're more science-oriented, and they're like, man, this just mm, this this doesn't make sense with the created order and how things work, and I'm just not quite sure... Uh, that I can buy into that. And so some of those folks just kind of walk away, you know, from the whole thing. It's like, if I can't prove it, if I can't get my brain around it in a reasonable way, um, I just can't go there. Uh, and that's somewhat reasonable. Now, other people, when they hear about God being relational and hearing other people talk about uh, their experiences of God, uh, they get a little bit nervous because there have been many times in history and still times today uh, where we have people who claim to have experiences of God leading them to things, hearing God telling them things. And I'm not talking about like mental health disorder type things that, you know, cause people to say some really odd things. I'm talking about run-of-the-mill normal people walking around in the daily public who, as far as we know, uh, are are healthy in most ways. And, uh, and they seem to historically and even now have some ideas that just don't sound like God. Historical things we think of, there's some classic total whiffs uh, by Christians over time that cause a lot of people consternation. Uh, I'm thinking about crusades. Uh, I'm thinking about an American history, manifest destiny. We come on the shore and we assume God is with us. God has made us better than these savages, so to speak. And so we're just going to go for it, and it's our right to do so. Uh, we are king of the hill, and so away we go, and we can do whatever we want, however we want, because that's how God wanted it. That comes from bad theology. Bad theology is often born out of our own desires and our not-so-good uh, spaces and dreams and what we want. And we tend to craft a theology to work for us, that's a normal human tendency, and Manifest Destiny was a horrible expression of that, where we enacted in our own history our own genocide, 
uh, for our own advantage to their detriment. I don't care how you whitewash this thing, and it is a whitewash. I don't care how you spin this. There's no justification for what happened. There's no justification for it. American slavery is right there with it. And I know we've talked about this plenty. And we can talk about different actors. We can blame the Dutch for using their ships. We can blame even people in Africa who sold some of their own people or people from other uh, regions and tribes and all that and all that. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, uh, hundreds of thousands of Africans came to our shores for the explicit purpose of us putting them into slave labor. And theology backed us up. So theology matters a lot, and especially when we have things like this where we hear people saying you know, that God led them to this, their experience of God and, and God's relational uh, capacity you know, led them to think these kinds of things. And even today, as we are still, still feeling the effects of slavery and, and manifest destiny and the racism that it uh, has still and been bedded with us. We're not done with it yet. It's here. These are all things that when people hear about people feeling led by God and a relationship with God, that it just freaks them out and for good reason. So I want to talk about these things today. How do we understand um, God being a relational God, yet all of these complexities? And what do we do with that? Because I think probably most of you who are watching this, unless you're on that rigid science side you're like yeah forget it i don't even want to think about this it's nonsense it's in your imagination i have a word for you uh, in a bit uh, but for the rest of you who are like open to this spirituality and if you're even tuning in you probably are and if you're at crosswalk you're probably pretty roomy on this uh, kind of stuff well you know these are important questions how do we understand what we believe uh, so that we don't find our own way into our own personal manifest destiny doing whatever the heck we want because we're just so sure God would have it that way. That's dangerous stuff. So we're going to talk about this. Uh, but the first thing we want to just recognize is that throughout the Bible, God is highly relational. You know, if God wanted to, uh, God could have, you know, written down everything that God wanted to be known about God and make a test available for everybody to make sure everybody got it right uh, and just throw us a book. Uh, and just said, here you go. Now, some people treat faith like that, and they look at the Bible as a life instruction manual, and it's all written there. Every possible problem you can have can be answered in the Bible. Well, maybe in a very general sense, but again, just like with theology, depending on where you look in the Bible, you can answer all kinds of questions in very bad ways. And so all of this is just to say that I don't think that was really God's point. I don't think God was interested in just giving us, you know, a constitution of bylaws and saying, have at it. Um, that's not really how God played it uh, throughout the Bible. If that were the case, then God just would have dumped the thing and left and we never would have heard, you know, from God again. But that's not what happened. God is extremely relational um, throughout the text. From Genesis to Revelation, God is relational. God shows up in the lives of people in ways that they can understand, that are highly contextualized. They're built for the person in the time, using language and expressions that make sense to them. 
and they're generally deeply relevant. So a handful of stories. You have Abraham, uh, who first is named Abram, and he senses this call from God. He's living somewhere near Baghdad, current day Baghdad, and he's super rich. His dad is super wealthy, and he senses this call to leave that country and go start a new thing, not just go to a new land with a new zip code, but a whole new way of thinking about God. That's relational. And so Abraham does it because it was so compelling and so clear. He was like, I want to be in relationship with this God who is leading me to this new thing. And it was very different and very new and contrasted to other religions uh, around him when he went and started this thing, which became Judaism. I'm going to talk a little about uh, a character uh, in Abraham's story in Genesis in a bit. Later on, uh, you see uh, his son uh, or grandson, Jacob, uh, who uh, was a little bit of a trickster. And after he <laughs> finagled his brother out of, a, out of an inheritance worth who knows how much money, apparently Esau was upset, as most people would be, wanted to kill him. Jacob blows out. Uh, he spends the night, lays his head on a rock, and has this grand vision of a ladder extending into heaven and angels of God going up and down on this thing. And it was one of these moments where he realized he was in the place of God, the house of God. Surely this is where uh, God lives. He had an experience, a, a unitive experience actually, of, of seeing God in a whole new way. Fast forward a little bit, actually a lot of bit, and you get to Moses. Moses, the burning bush, you saw the movie. Uh, this is an experience he couldn't forget. And in this very relational event that happens, Moses senses that he's supposed to go back to Egypt where he grew up, be an agent of God, and get God's people out of there. And we know how that turned out. Uh, much down the pike, uh, you have Elijah, who is the great prophet of Israel. And this Elijah, he, he's running from for his life after he saw God do incredible things. But he's terrified anyway, because that's how human nature works. We get have moments of great courage, and then we're faced with our fears all over again. That's just the way it is. So Elijah goes up to this mountaintop because, you know, the higher you get up to heaven, surely God is closer, doesn't have to work so hard to get to you. This is crazy, but that's how people thought. And so he's up at the top of this very important mountain where very holy things happened and expects God to come in a storm. God doesn't show up in the storm and the lightning or the winds or all that. And finally he senses God saying, go outside. I got, I got something for you. And God it gives himself relationally to Elijah, not in all the bells and whistles and the fireworks, but in a still, small voice. If you go to back to the Hebrew language, it says that it was in the sound of silence that Elijah had this conversation with God. In that conversation, not only was that it itself plenty, that there is stuff that happens in silence, which is why meditation, contemplation, sitting in silence is a good idea <laughs> because things happen for us in that, in that area. But he also found out that he wasn't alone, as alone as he thought he was. Uh, God actually knew a whole bunch of people uh, that were listening to his voice and Elijah didn't need to feel so afraid and outnumbered. Uh, down the pike some more, we find ourselves with Jesus. So we're really fast forwarding here. And we find Jesus on his uh, baptismal experience. Uh, he experiences the presence of God coming on him. 
And those who kind of witnessed it and wrote it down for us, you know, uh, said it, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. This is something Jesus must surely have felt tangibly. And interestingly, I want you to think about the bird that was chosen to represent the presence of God. It was a dove. A dove uh, up to that point was a sign of peace. Peace. The bird that descended as the Holy Spirit of God was not an eagle. Not an eagle of war that we see uh, put on emblems everywhere of strength and might and we're going to take you out. No, the Holy Spirit came in the image of peace. Let that sink in, Christian folk, uh, for maybe how we're supposed to enter the world and what we're supposed to be about. What's most important? Anyway, that was a very personal experience uh, for Jesus. And right after that, he goes on his camping trip for 40 days and 40 nights to kind of sort all this stuff out. What the heck just happened to me? Where am I going with this whole thing? He has this temptation toward the end of it. He's really hungry. He hasn't eaten in all this time. And he faces three temptations. These are all very personal exchanges. It's a conversation he's having with himself, with God, with this tempter. The whole thing is there. And in that situation, he has this relationship identity moment with God, where he basically says to God, and all three of these temptations, they, they each meant something different. The first one about turning a stone to bread so you can eat something is like, I'm not going to live my life by my passions. It's not going to be my stomach that leads me uh, to do what I do. I'm, I'm going to lead my life based on the principles of what I understand God doing in the world. And then when he says, oh, you throw yourself off the, the top of this thing and and command God's angels to to catch you and that kind of a thing. He quotes, quoting scripture all the way, the devil's doing this. And Jesus simply says, no, I'm not going to do that. Quote scripture back to him. And the point that Jesus was getting at here is like, not only am I not going to live by my passions, but I'm aware of who's God and who's not. And I'm not. That may be a challenging thing for you, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to take God's lead on this. I'm not going to tell God what God needs to do. I'm looking to ask God what God wants me to do. And I'm going to keep it that way as good as I can. And the final one had to do with bowing down to Satan and all the nations in the whole world would be his. I think I'm getting these in the right order. And Jesus simply says, uh, that's not how it's going to go. And it's this statement basically saying, I am not after my own power or my own glory. I am here to lift up uh, what God is doing in the world and point to God. That's what I'm about. Well, all of that is deeply relational. All that's happening in this exchange of time and space where God and Jesus are interacting together in this moment to get him ready uh, to enter into his public ministry. Fast forward a few years, and now Jesus is gone. Peter is at the seashore, hanging out at the top of a roof of a friend, uh, right on the ocean, sweet view. It's almost lunchtime. He's having a moment of meditation and daily prayer, and he has this vision. Again, this is a relational thing where God is reaching out to Peter now and giving him this vision of this crazy huge sheet that's coming down filled with all kinds of food that Jewish people aren't supposed to eat. And three times in a row this thing happens. Peter needs things to happen three times in a row, just how he's wired, I guess. Anyway, all three of these times, Peter hears a voice saying about these foods that he's not supposed to eat, uh, take and eat. And every single time Peter says, I'm not going to do that. That's forbidden. Far be it from me to disobey you. 
And yet each time God says, don't call unclean what I am calling clean. Take and eat. And then Peter senses God saying to him, there's going to be somebody coming and knocking at the door. You just go with them and do, do what they say. But he did. This led to this incredible story about Gentile inclusion, where the faith was now not just a Jewish thing, but it was for absolutely everybody. Really, really amazing. Fast forward a little bit more. You got the Apostle Paul, who becomes a champion of the early church. But before he was a champion, he was the biggest villain of the early church, wanting to go around and round these people up, uh, bring them back to court, maybe get them killed if he's lucky. And on his way to do that, on the road to Damascus, what happens? But he has this vision of a blinding light that expresses itself as the risen Christ. I mean, this is this is relational stuff. This isn't God hanging out and sending a textbook or an email or whatever. This is this is God showing up in life. And I believe that God does this all the time. <laughs> I think I think we have. We'll get more into this in the next couple of uh, sessions. But you know, I, I really think our problem is is that we keep looking for these lightning bolts or these huge signs. When I really believe that God is constantly at work, constantly speaking to us, constantly nudging us in the ways that are going to lead to our well-being and the well-being of the world, constantly. Stop <laughs> Stop wondering when God might actually speak to you and just start to look around and pay attention, maybe in new ways, because it's already happening. One of the stories that is heartbreaking, but also um, illustrative of all this stuff comes from a story uh, with, uh, with Abraham. And the deal was, is Abraham was given this promise by God, you go do this new nation thing, I'm gonna make you a great nation. You're going to have all kinds of kids, more than you're going to know what to do with. Christmas is going to be very, very expensive. Uh, and so he's like, okay, great. Uh, gets married, has this wife, and they have trouble make, having kids. This is not working out. Uh, so we find this in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, this is before her name was Sarah, Abram's wife, before his name was Abraham, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant, because you know that's what you do. Not working out for us, just yeah, go sleep with somebody else. Uh, perhaps I can have children through her. Now, just a little caveat, contextualize. This was a thing that they did back in antiquity. I do not recommend this uh, in this particular way for all kinds of reasons. Generally not a good idea to own people. That's, that's something. And then also probably not a good idea to then turn them into sex slaves as well. But that's what's actually taking place here. And it's awful. And that's just the way it was back then. So we remember that. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal, apparently. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So they were waiting 10 years before this was going to happen. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar grew, knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her, her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Because this all makes sense. Of course it's Abram's fault. Abram replied, Look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Mistake. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. 
The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness, along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? Just side note, those two questions, where have you come from, where are you going, journal on that for the rest of your life. The two great questions that are asked of Hagar. Oh my goodness. That's a sermon in itself. That's a book in itself. That is so good. So anyway, don't look at that as just, you know, idle chatter. So important. So deep. Uh, Gets these questions. And of course, uh, Sarai uh, or Hagar just answers, well, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She replied, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. The angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Well, the story goes on a little bit. And finally, um, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Berlaharai Roy or something like that, which means well of the living one who sees me. I love this story. There are parts of the story I absolutely hate. Uh, the whole thing about owning people and sex slave, that part's ter- terrible. The mistreatment of Hagar, terrible. There's no excuse for it. It's That part's all awful, but the great part about this story is that God sees it. God recognizes what's happening. God recognizes the agony of Hagar and shows up in a way that is understandable to Hagar and has these two brilliant questions. Well, where are you coming from and where are you going? What's your life about? What's what's brought you to this point and where is it headed? Gives her comfort. I mean, there's some There's some tough stuff here. I'm assuming Sarai maybe toned it down a little bit. Later on, uh, Hagar leaves for good. Uh, And that's another ugly chapter, uh, which reminds us that even the patriarchs of the faith who were supposed to be these wonderful people absolutely blow it at times and are horrible, horrible people at times because we have that capacity within us. We see that happen here in this story, but the beauty of it is is God does not join in that suffering. Uh, I mean, God does not increase the suffering, but God actually joins Hagar, the one who's been been mistreated, in her suffering and gives her hope. For Hagar to hear that God has heard after she'd been through what she'd been through and treated like she did not matter is extraordinary. I think God still does this today. Did you know that there are hundreds of names of God written in the Bible We kind of come down to Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, in the Christian tradition, which is a horrible mistake uh, in in one way anyway, because it makes us think that this is all the ways that we can know God. But all of those different names of God that are in particularly the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, they all refer to experiences of God relating to people in a particular moment in time. That's extraordinary. And so, uh, so this should give us great hope. It gives us great confidence that, yep, Uh, Our faith tradition speaks of this God as being relational. And then if you read church history, 
you find people, I mean, it's just littered uh, with people who've had these profound experiences of God moving in their lives and speaking to them, calling them to do things, and God speaking in a multitude of ways. You know, some very common ones are God speaks through the Bible. So when we read a story and we relate to a story, God speaks to us in that. God also speaks to us in community. And, you know, it could be that, you know, we're struggling with something and somebody that loves us, that we care about, sees this, has something to say to us, and it's just what we needed to hear. Could it be that God was nudging them to say just the thing in the right amount of time, just when we needed it? Of course. Sometimes it's circumstances uh, that we find ourselves in, and God uses those things to, to speak to us. Sometimes it's nature. Some, the creation itself speaks to us and is instructive in our relationship with God all by itself and what life is and how it all works. This stuff's all there. God is constantly trying to be in relationship with us. And the question is, is will we say yes to that? Some of you on the science side, uh, if you even find this at some point, uh, and you just kind of say, ah, it's all poppycock. We're not going to listen to this nonsense. Uh, give me, you know, give me something we can really understand. You know, I recently heard a, a well-known scientist say that, you know, true science and a good scientist is confident in their research and yet humble enough to know that they don't know everything so that they're still curious going forward. Well, if if the God that you don't want a part of is simply a God of construct that people have made over time in antiquity, well, maybe the construct's wrong and you could be missing out on something. And there's a book that I came across, um, a friend of mine helped, uh, well, was the co-editor of it. It's how it's titled, um, How I Came to See God in Everyone and Everything. And this book offers story after story of a lot of science-minded people, how they came to faith, in some cases, despite their scientific background. And you know what brought them there? Their scientific discovery, their curiosity, they just kept going. And so I would encourage you to pick up that book. I'll list it in my blog. Now, there's another book that's a little more accessible, not it's kind of sciencey in a different way, by Rob Bell called What We Talk About When We Talk About God. Profound stuff. Uh, that thing holds up even though it's eight years old. So I encourage you to get a copy of that if that's your bent, if you're more on that scientific uh, kind of way, then learn about this stuff uh, because you're missing out. And who knows how God might nudge you more fully when you actually know that's what's happening. <laughs> because here's the thing, even if you don't believe any of it, that doesn't mean God's not still doing it. So you might as well find out what's going on if there's something going on and get in on it because it's pretty powerful stuff. I already talked about all the atrocity kind of stuff and how we need to watch out for that. And so I hope that you'll hear that and understand that. I also hope that you'll understand that we as human beings have a way of wanting to box things in and be done with it. And we kind of did that with the Trinity. The concept of the Trinity, you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible because it was created, it was crafted a long time uh, after the last book in the Bible um, was was put in the, in the collection. A long time after that. The Trinity itself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was an attempt to describe the nature of God uh, because people understood that the nature of God is not just this God up in the sky, but that God is active and personal and real and showed up, you know, in a person, you know, which is pretty radical stuff. 
and is at work and beyond that one person. So they gave us this metaphor called the Trinity, which then we codified and said, well, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're probably going to hell. So there. And that's probably a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, so if you have trouble with the Trinity, that's fine. Let it be the metaphor that it's supposed to be. Try to hear the heart of what's being stated. It still has value. You don't have to get all literal about it. That's not helpful anyway uh, and, and move forward. To conclude, I just want to tell you from my own personal experience that I believe this stuff because it's my experience, my relational experiences with God that keep me in the faith. Uh, that God has shown up in my life at multiple times and major milestones in my journey uh, that I will never forget. God has been active in my, in my life in ways that I have no idea God is active in my life. And someday I hope to get a glimpse of that. And hopefully I will. But my call to ministry, that was a relational thing of God speaking to me. And not like with an audible voice, but I, I just knew this is what I was supposed to do. Understanding about how God is relational, that was its own experience. Uh, I've experienced God coming alongside me as a great comforter, like God did with Adam and Eve when they when they blew it up. And there have been times in my life when I've absolutely blown it up. And I've experienced God coming along and embracing me and comforting me and helping me move forward. I've experienced God as one who messes with my binaries uh, because... You know, we like to think of things in black and white. And so there have been times in my life where I was like, I am not worthy of anything of God. I'm an idiot. And yet God would still speak to me, through me, and use me, even though I was struggling in an area of my life, or two, or three, or four, or a hundred. Uh, and that just kind of helped me realize that, oh, well, I mean, we need to be improving. That's a good thing. But we don't have to be perfect for God to use us for God to love us or to empower us. Powerful, powerful stuff. The list goes on and on. I could continue to bore you with all that, but I won't. All I want you to know is, is that God really, really is relational. God is with you. Always has been. Can't not be. And so my encouragement to you is to, how are you going to develop your capacity to hear that and respond to it and recognize the voice of God so that you can really take advantage of all that it is because all that it is is majestic. And this is a two-way street, by the way. Um, you're impacted by how God speaks into your life. God is impacted, as are you, when you speak back to God. And so when you say words of praise, what do you think that does for a person? Well, what do you think that does you know, for the heart of God? What does it do to add more of joy into the world if we are doing our part to say to God, you go man or woman, whatever, however we describe you, you're awesome. You know, when we do acts of worship and praise, how can that not have an effect? So I just want to encourage you to think big about just how God is relational in your life and embrace it, own it, and go forward with it. Jesus modeled this in his life. He wasn't just going around teaching school. He was modeling this and talking about what does it look like to live in response to God. And the whole Lord's Prayer that he gave us is a framework for thinking about how to live our lives, not just how to memorize a prayer to get God to do stuff. The whole thing is a model for us to think about what it means to do life with God. And so I hope you'll join with me now in a moment of silence. To just kind of sink in on this and then we'll conclude with the Lord's Prayer.
Do you have ears to hear the silence of God? Do you have the openness and capacity to wonder again, to be curious, to be open? Because the Spirit of God is always at work. The Spirit of God led Jesus to know how to pray. And he taught his disciples to pray the prayer that I hope you'll pray with me now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hope you guys have a great week. I hope you guys experience the love of God in a relational, contextualized, personal way. And I can't wait to hear all about it. If you've got any questions on this, shoot me an email. I love talking about this stuff and I'd love to talk with you about it. Just text me, email me, call me, whatever. Let's make it happen. I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.